ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 127, Pope John the 11th. Are you ready for him? No. (laughs) No? (laughs) You're right. I didn't tell you. Actually, I've got to grab my dice. You normally warn me. You know what? I was so on the whole like, ooh, Fry's going to be excited about this one because it's Marozia's son. That I didn't stop to think about the Johnness of it all. Amazing. All right. I've got it. I'm ready now. Okay. So let's roll and get his nickname. He's got a one. Oh. And he's got a 14. Um, okay. So he is Beautiful Revenge. Oh my god, <laughs> so, I mean, for reasons that we're going to get to in this episode, that is so insanely perfect, <laughs> but also not for him, <laughs> but for this whole, <laughs> well, I'm having a reaction, I should just tell you the story, because you, you really see. should. Let's do this. I need to bring you on this adventure with me now, so that... <laughs> This will all become clear to you why this is amazing. So, John was born in Rome, obviously, sometime around 910, to the most noble family in Rome at the time, the House of Tusculum. His mother was, of course, Marozia, and his father was Alberic I of Spoleto, Marozia's first husband. But, like we covered in Sergius III's episode, there were plenty of rumors that, in fact, John's actual father was Pope Sergius III from his alleged affair with Marozia, starting when she was just 15 years old. Oh. Yeah, that was super gross. And as we quoted at the time from Luprand of Cremona, we shall do again. Theodora had two daughters, Marozia and Theodora, not just her equals, but if anything, even faster in the exercise of Venus. Of these two, Marozia, by a wicked affair with Pope Sergius, of whom we made mention above, gave birth to John, who after the death of John the Revenant, obtained the leadership of the Roman Church. But, as we have covered several times already, Lutprand was exceptionally hostile to the entire house of Tusculum and the popes of this era, and the other major sources of this era, like Auxilius and Vulgarius, don't make any mention of this affair or cast any doubt on John's parentage. So most historians reject Lutprand's take and accept Alberic to be John's legitimate father. And before we move away from this family, we should also mention that John also had a brother, Alberic II, who's going to feature prominently in his brother's papacy, and a sister who we only know about due to surviving letters attempting to negotiate a marriage between her and the son of the Byzantine Emperor, Romanus I. So, the boys in this family become more important. So, considering who this family was, and how the House of Tusculum maintained power and influence over the city of Rome through the papacy, there was no doubt that from the moment he was born, John was going to be Pope. Beautiful revenge was going to be Pope. 
His mother had every intention of continuing control through a line of puppet popes, this time in the form of a doting son who would just do her bidding and cater to her every whim. So naturally, John entered the church at some point and was perfunctorily promoted through the ranks, and in 928, he was made the cardinal priest of Santa Maria in Trastevere, because of course, it had to be a church with the highest prestige while he waited to basically come of age. And then when he did, effectively as soon as he turned 21 in March of 931, after the awfully convenient death of Pope Stephen VII, John assumed the papacy. And becoming Pope at just 21 years of age makes John one of the youngest popes in history, which is what you were kicking up so much of a fuss about last time. You were not prepared for a young pope. You're like, this is going to be terrible. <laughs> We might assume that this would make him the youngest pope in history, but there's at least one other of the same age, and there's one pope that was made pope potentially in his actual teens. Yes. Yeah. And spoiler alert, both of these young popes are from this same era. Oh, jeez. Yeah. And also from this same family line. So no one should be surprised at all. These are the people who are going to make young bad popes. And we also have an omen. Are you ready for this? Yes. Thunderbolts and lightning. <laughs> well, not thunderbolts and lightning this time. According to Bartolomeo Platino. Thunderballs. <laughs> thunderbolts? There you go. Did I say thunderballs? If I did, leave it in. <laughs> <laughs> But according to Bartolomeo Platina, quote, John XI, a Roman, son, as some say, of Pope Sergius, came to be Pope when a fountain at Genoa streamed blood in great quantities, as Vicentius and Martinus relate, a sure presage of the ensuing calamities. That's a, a little terrifying. Yeah, a bloody <laughs> fountain is, is not a good omen. It's a, a sure presage of ensuing calamities. And yeah, <laughs> that, that's how it's going to go. But before we can even begin to look at John's papacy, we have to deal with who's really in charge because Marozia has some plans of her own. In 929, Marozia's second husband, Guy of Tuscany, the one who had helped her take control of Rome and imprison and kill Pope John X, died. And so now she had her sights set on a new marriage, one that promised even more power and better control of Rome. You see, she wanted to marry Hugh of Arles, our current king of Italy, and Guy's half-brother. So she wants to marry her dead husband's half-brother. Yeah, that sounds illegal. Yeah, and it technically is canonically illegal due to affinity. But they're choosing to ignore that fact because who's the ultimate ruling authority on canon issues? The Pope. The Pope. And who is the Pope? Marozia's son. The baby. <laughs> the baby, yes. 
And also, at this time, they're choosing to ignore it because the only person who made a vocal protest about this issue of affinity in their marriage was Lambert of Tuscany, Hugh's other half-brother. And he just sort of conveniently ends up blinded and imprisoned and soon dead. Conveniently. So, how lucky for them. No one's really protesting this marriage. Oh, and what's more... Who is it that declares Holy Roman Emperors? The Pope. Again, it's the Pope. So how cushy would it be for Marozia if her son made her new husband Emperor? So good. So good. Every possible avenue of power is going to be at her fingertips. And because I can't resist, I have a quote for you. And this is Lutpran's absolute slandering of Marozia over this marriage. And in this quote, he sort of addresses her directly and does that thing where you sort of imagine how a fight conversation is going to go with somebody. He says, Why, Marozia, do you rage, urged on by Venus's stings? Now you expect the sweetnesses of your spouse's brother, and to marry two brothers equaling Herodias. You are blind, forgetful of John's teaching, who forbade brothers to violate brothers' spouses. The songs of the prophet Moses do not support you, that ordered the brother to take the brother's wife if the first one could not engender a son. Our times know you to have borne offspring to your husband. I know you will retort, Venus, a drunk, cares not a whit for this. Now there comes, like a desired bull, led you to under-yoke King Hugh, moved more by the Roman city. What does it profit you, a wicked woman, to ruin such a holy man, while you hope through such a great crime to seem a queen? Actually, you shall lose great Rome with God judging you. All right. That was a little harsh. In Lutpran's mind, he won this fight. You know, Mm -hmm. wicked woman ruining such a holy man. It is worth noting, by the way, despite Lutpran claiming that Marozia was ruining such a holy man, historian E.R. Chamberlain reminds us, quote, Certainly Hugh was the most accomplished satyr of his day, his royal court resembling a brothel at which Italians marveled. So, holy man indeed. Satyr like the little little beastie with the goat legs? Horny goat man, yes. Yeah, he was a super horny goat man who ran his court like a brothel, and yet Marozia is the wicked one ruining a holy man. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, sure. (laughs) Misogyny is everywhere. (laughs) But there was one person besides Lutprand that this whole situation didn't sit well with at all. And you might be thinking that it's the Pope, but it's not the Pope. The Pope seemed perfectly set to comply with his mother's wishes and officiated the wedding. Again, in the words of E.R. Chamberlain, quote, There was a certain murkiness about the wedding atmosphere. Behind the groom were the specters of a wife who had conveniently died, a defamed mother, a brother blinded and in a dungeon. The hands of the bride who awaited him were only too probably stained with the blood of his half-brother, and were certainly stained with the blood of a pope. But her son was performing the ceremony, and he, supreme judge of morals in Europe, saw no just impediments to the marriage. So it's not him. He's perfectly happy to do this. No. The person who was not happy, in the slightest, was Marozia's other son, 
the Pope's 19-year-old brother, Alberic II. And while he might have objected to the match for political and canonical reasons, it's very, very clear that Alberic the son and Hugh, the new stepfather, had an intense personal dislike for one another. And this comes to head on the wedding day. Now, for the wedding, Hugh arrived in Rome. And since he was being received with full honor, he stations his troops outside the city walls. He's here for a wedding and not for a conquest. He doesn't need to bring his soldiers in to protect him. According to the sources, then, Alberic was in attendance for the wedding. And during the preparation, Alberic either spilled or poured out water that was meant for King Hugh to wash his hands before the ceremony a little too vigorously. He's either splashing it, maybe he's being kind of rude. The end result is that this water gets poured vigorously, and this is off Hugh, and he hits Alberic in the face. Again, such a holy man, right? So holy. <laughs> but this is after he's been uh, corrupted. Yeah, corrupted by horrible Venus harlot. Marozia. Not you, Rowan. <laughs> Definitely not, Rowan. A pope. Are you a pope? Not the pope. A man. A kingly man. The king of... <laughs> Rowan has absolutely not been corrupted by any bad women. <laughs> well, after being hit in the face on his mother's wedding day, Alberic snapped, and he storms out of the proceedings. And while the wedding was underway, Alberic is rousing the people of Rome to rebel against Hugh and his mother. Here comes the beautiful revenge. <laughs> Not him. <laughs> Not The Pope's brother is the one who should have this nickname, but it, it will all come together. So, quoting from Lutprand. When Alberic, at his mother's request, was pouring water so that King Hugh, his stepfather that is, could wash his hands, he was hit in the face by him as a reprimand because he would not pour the water moderately and carefully. Therefore this man, so that he might avenge the offense against himself, gathered together the Romans and addressed them with a speech like this. The dignity of the Roman city is led to such depths of stupidity that it now obeys the command of a prostitute. For what is more lurid and more debased than the city of Rome should perish by the impurity of one woman, and the one-time slaves of the Romans, the Burgundians, should rule the Romans? If he hits my face, that is, the face of his stepson, and what is more, when he is a recently arrived guest, what do you think he will do to you as soon as he settled in? Without delay, after hearing these words, all abandoned King Hugh and elected this Alberic as their lord. And lest King Hugh have the opportunity for mobilizing his soldiers, they quickly began to attack the fortification. It was clear that this was the decision of the divine dispensation. What King Hugh had sordidly seized by such a crime, he could not by any means hold on to. In fact, he was overtaken by such fright that lowering himself with a rope on that side of the castle where the city walls were attached to it, he abandoned Rome and fled to his men. 
Thus, with King Hugh and the aforementioned Morotia expelled, Alberic held the monarchy of the Roman city, with his brother John presiding over the bishopric of the highest and universal see. So, without his troops at hand, Hugh was caught totally unprepared for the rabble that was roused by Alberic. Rabble, rabble. Rabble, And he was forced to flee out of a window with a rope from his own wedding. Fun. Amazing. Beautiful <laughs> revenge. But Alberic did not stop there. He now has the support of the people, so he also imprisons Marozia, his mother, in the Castel San Angelo, and confines his brother, the Pope, in the Lateran. So, in one fell swoop, in literally less than a day, he has kicked out the stepfather he didn't want, imprisoned his mother and his brother, and taken complete control of Rome. And this is the end of Marozia, by the way, because she is kept in prison at the Castel St. Angelo until her death five years later. Oh, wow. Yeah. So all of that effort to make her son Pope, and she is going to benefit nothing from it, except to sit in jail. But (laughs) on the same token, John isn't going to reap any power or benefit as Pope either, because he is also going to remain a prisoner in the Lateran for the entirety of his papacy, completely under the control of his brother, with even less agency than he would have had under his mother. Like, Alberic is not taking any chances on his newly won power, and since the Pope had been the puppet of Marozia, he's making sure that John has no choice but to do his bidding and his bidding alone. Nope, you don't listen to mom anymore. It is all me. And Alberic will maintain his hold as master of Rome far beyond John or Marozia, continuing to keep King Hugh out of the city and completely damage his reputation as king of Italy. Beautiful, beautiful revenge. Amazing. It's so good. That nickname, it's just meant to be. So now we have to actually talk about John's papacy. It is safe to say, under these circumstances, the decisions and actions carried out by the Pope were far from his own. But then again, they were never going to be his own anyways. It's just now there's no illusion because he's not just a puppet, he's a prisoner. So what does John actually do as Pope under his new master? Turns out, not a lot. Oh, Yeah, not a lot. He doesn't have a lot of time for much of anything. But under pressure of Alberic, John does bestow two palliums, one to the Patriarch of Constantinople, Theophylactus, and one to the Archbishop Artold of Reims. And neither of these were good choices. Since it's been a while since we've talked about palliums, a reminder for our listeners that sending a pallium was like a mark of special distinction from the Pope, recognizing the receiving metropolitan or archbishop as the highest of authority within their jurisdiction. Big deal. We talked about it in a lot more detail in episode 36. But these are not good men to receive the pallium. So first off, Patriarch Theophylactus was not very pious at all, and he only held the position of Patriarch because he was the son of the Emperor Romanus, who had deposed the former patriarch in order to secure his son this position when he came of age. Sound familiar? (laughs) 
Yeah. This is a massive age for nepotism of the church due to secular authority. Now, Horace K. Mann provides us an excellent summary on what Theophylactus was like. Quote, For some 20 years, this imperial nominee scandalized the Church of Constantinople. He was at once simoniacal, profane, and extravagant. He introduced dances into the most solemn services of church, kept 2,000 horses, and could not wait to finish mass if he was informed that a favorite mare was about to fall. This hippomania brought about his death. He died in 956 from a fall from one of his horses. So I'm literally picturing them like twerking through the sacred ceremonies of the church and then the patriarch taking off because like his favorite sports team is playing. His new horse is about to be born. This is not a man who cares at all about the church and is scandalizing Constantinople in the same way that John is scandalizing Rome. Mann also suggests that there was initially a delay from the Pope in confirming Theophylactus as patriarch, and this might indicate that Pope John himself was unwilling to confirm Theophylact. And since the confirmation and the pallium were speedily on their way as soon as Alberic comes into power, suggests that Alberic is forcing his brother's hand. He also suggests that Romanus probably bribed Alberic to ensure his son is patriarch, and that it might have been part of those marriage negotiations for Alberic and John's sister to marry one of Romanus's other sons. Although that doesn't end up happening. Now the other pallium was sent to Artold of Reims. And you might remember, this was a while ago for you now, Fry, so you may not actually remember, but in Pope John X's episode, episode 124, we discussed the bishopric of Reims because it had been awarded to a freaking five-year-old Hugh of Vermandois, the son of Count Herbert of Vermandois, who had taken King Charles the Simple prisoner and deposed him as king of West Francia. Ringing any bells? No, it's been too long. <laughs> nope. But anyways, the, the important part there was that the bishop of Reims at that time was a five-year-old. Yes, a child. Yes, child, babies. Babies everywhere in the church. He had been deposed in 931 during a quarrel between Count Herbert and King Ralph slash Rudolph of West Francia and replaced with Artold. Now, according to the sources other than Artold himself, who wrote as well, this was not well accepted by the clergy or the people of Reims, who didn't want to elect another bishop since Hugh was still alive and hadn't actually been canonically deposed. But Alberic insisted that Pope John send a pallium to the new bishop as a legitimizing act. I mean, this didn't make the archbishopric stable or secure, and we're definitely coming back to that in a few episodes, but he was still forced to do it. Now, the only neutral to positive sort of thing that we can give John credit for was to grant a charter confirming the privileges of the monastery at Cluny and its dependent houses. This is somewhat important, according to the early history of the monastery at Cluny author L.M. Smith, because there was a clause in it that stated, quote, Because it is only too clear that almost all monasteries have erred from the regular life, we grant that if any monk from any monastery should wish to pass over to your manner of living, with the sole object of amending his life, 
That is, if his former abbot has neglected to provide regular means of subsistence for preventing the holding of private property, thou mayest receive him until such a time as the conduct of his monastery be corrected. So this is important, and the author goes on to state, this privilege had been granted but very rarely. The decree of the Council of Adge had forbidden any abbot to receive strange monks within his monastery, unless with their abbot's goodwill and consent. Now, however, with the express sanction of papal authority, the way was cleared for Cluny's propaganda. So basically, like with a diocese and a bishop consecrated to a diocese, once you are attached to a monastic house, you're not supposed to leave to go to another monastic house unless your abbot sends you willingly. But because the monasteries at this point are currently being seen as being out of order or corrupt or greatly in need of reform, and Cluny as the shining example of that reform, the Pope is giving any monk anywhere permission to go to Cluny if their goal is to live that exemplified life. So this gives Odo, the famous abbot of Cluny, full carte blanche to spread Cluniac reform. That's the only thing we can really give John any good credit for. Some Cluniac. The Cluniac reforms. And then John, Pope Beautiful Revenge, died in December of 935 at the age of 25, still a prisoner pope in the Lateran. Now, of course, given his age, Wendy J. Reardon claims that John was poisoned. And he might have been... But considering Alberic had John precisely where he wanted him, it doesn't seem likely that he was going to do away with his brother. Now we do get a little bit of interesting flavor from Floderd in the Chronicles of Reims about the day of John's death. We could consider this an omen as well. Let's see what you think. In September, the 14-day-old moon was covered in the color of blood and scarcely seemed to light up the night. Pope John the Eleventh, brother of the patrician Alberic, died, and Leo the Seventh, a servant of God, was established as Pope in Rome. So, according to Floderd, on the day of John's death, there was a blood moon. Oh no, like blood moons don't happen. Yeah, pretty much. Floderd also clearly thinks that John died in September, but most of our sources say December. So he was buried in the Lateran, as claimed by some sources, or the Vatican, as claimed by other sources. But in either case, his tomb was destroyed. Like usual. Yep, like usual. I mean, this is not one that they would fight very hard to preserve. But we do have an epitaph written by Floderd, which is very interesting compared to some of the other epitaphs we've had, so... From this patrician son, the pious writes seed to John the Eleventh, successor of Peter, who is lifted up by the name of the throne. Empty of virtue, lacking in splendor, now ministrating sacred rites. The brother was seized from the direction of law by the patrician, while attempting to put up with the adulterous mother of the incestuous roofs of affairs, subdued John and was his warden and keeper. This John, Pope in name only, for two years. It's a pretty spicy yeah, epitaph. Floater doesn't usually that mean. 
No, Floaters is usually so gentle and nice, and literally he's put on this man's tombstone, empty of virtue, lacking in splendor. <laughs> I can't think of a worse way to insult somebody but by putting that on their tombstone. But that is the papacy of Pope John XI. Beautiful revenge. And now it's time to rate him. Oh boy. <laughs> Papatum infallium. So, historians consider this to be one of the deepest humiliations of the church and the papacy. This pope has absolutely no power whatsoever and is entirely at the mercy of the secular authority. And in this case, also entirely at the mercy of his family. Horace K. Mann describes John XI as a puppet, a man without authority, destitute of all worldly dignity, who merely performed the sacred duties of his ministry, for all civil power had been seized by his brother, the patrician. I mean, he is quite literally forced to promote and honor ill-suited people for positions in the church. Even his coins show how little control he had. Quoting Horace K. Mann again, the extant coins of this pope show clearly the days both of his independence and dependence. Whilst he was free, his coins bore only his name, that of St. Peter and Rome. His state of subjection is shown by a coin discovered somewhat over 20 years ago in the Tiber. On the obverse, it not only bears the name of Alberic Princaps, with the monogram of the pope on the reverse. He's got nothing, except for maybe a point for supporting Cluniac reform. But it's not good. Uh, yeah, can we just maybe give them half a point each? Yeah, I think that is the only way to go forward because there is no more to give this man. This is bad. There is no prestige. There is no authority. There is no anything. But let's go to the category where he might score some points. Fructus prohibitum? I mean... He is going to get some points here, but the key is there is so much scandal happening all around him that most of it's not him. He's not in any of the sources described as being excessive or living in abject luxury. I'm sure he was because of his family, but there's nothing criticizing him personally. That being said, he should get some points because his papacy is purely because of nepotism. And he ignored the canonical illegitimacy of his mother's intended marriage and officiated anyway, which is a really bad look for the Pope. All right. Um, I'm going to give him one for each year he was Pope and then <laughs> one for marrying off his mom. Okay. So this is going to give away Tempus Pontificus, but it doesn't matter. So that's a four and one for marrying his mom. So that you're giving him a five. Unless you want to round up, because he was, we will round up. He was four years and nine months as Pope. Do you want to give him five or four? Oh, let's give him four. Okay, four plus your point for marrying his mom, giving him a five. I was thinking about the four mark as well, so I'll give him a four. We'll end up at a nine. Seems about right. Seculari impactum. So, again, this is bad for him. He has a total loss of temporal power. 
there is nothing. There is a great deal of secular impact during his papacy, right? We have King Hugh of Italy is driven out of Rome. Marozia is deposed as senatrix of Rome. We have a new patrician of the city. But he has no say or involvement in any of that whatsoever. No, he doesn't. So how are you feeling about this? Oh, uh, I guess it's a zero. It's a zero, for sure. And now it's time for Facium Sanctus. And I have literally written in my notes here, Fry, the worst face I have ever seen. Oh, God. <laughs> are you ready? Facium Sanctus. And you'll see exactly what I mean, but this is the worst face I have ever seen, so here you go. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's not even, oh. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's not, that's somewhere beyond a Bethesda face. <laughs> There's clearly some terrible things happening with coloration here. Clearly. But also, like, even in the good one, because there are two other versions of this. It's not a good expression. Everything is pretty terrible about it. He's got, how do you even describe it? His nasolabial folds on the side of his face are so prominent that they're actually folded in on itself. He's making like, it's not duck lips because duck lips are big, but what would you, like lemon percy uh, no, lips? No, it's more like you know, like a baby doll? Yep, yep. It's that. It's baby doll lips, that weird sort of Percy... Bow shape. Yeah, it's very strange. He's also, like, very jowly. His ear is melting in <laughs> all of these. Even in the good He's one. He's got, like, a Homer Simpson 5 o'clock shadow. Oh, it's... Yes, it's, it's a very aggressive five o'clock shadow his hairline stops making sense <laughs> that's not his fault <laughs> i don't i isn't it i mean it's it looks disheveled on top of everything else it's disheveled so you got the little lump where his tantra is yes and it doesn't match up with his skull it doesn't match up with his skull at all. And then he's got a cowlick in the front that is, all of it is terrible. His nose goes straight down. And it's so long despite going straight down. It is the most of angular noses. It's just, yeah, it's the worst face I've ever seen covering this show. And that, that almost makes me want to score it highly because this is one that I will remember. Ugh. But yeah, it's it's really bad. <laughs> so, he, what's Marozia look like? Funny you should say that. I have a photo for you. That was the next thing I was gonna send you. Here is Marozia. Okay, Marozia doesn't look that bad. This must be Sergius's jeans. <laughs> so this illustration for our listeners, if they're looking for it, it's Marozia, a pencil drawing by Franco Mistrali. From E Mystery del Vaticano o la Roma dei Papi, The Mysteries of the Vatican or The Rome of the Popes, Volume 1 from 1861. I also have a drawing to show you of the marriage of Hugh and Marozia. 
This is the marriage of Ugo and Marozia, wedding procession in the presence of the Pope, an engraving by E. Mancastropa from a painting by Ludovico Poliaghi. And there it is. This is <laughs> them clearly facing the rabble, rabble, rabble. Yeah, clearly. No one looks very happy at this mm-hmm. wedding at all. No. Okay. We gotta go back to the Pope, though. The Pope, <laughs> yes, we have so to d- rate his face. He's supposed to be 25. Yeah. What? 25. <laughs> he looks, I don't know, uh, he... 50. <laughs> yeah, he does not look good. You said this is Sergius's genes, so let's see how Sergius scored up. Sergius got... In this category, he got a two. (laughs) He gave him a two and a six. (laughs) So, yeah, this is the worst face I've ever seen for this show. I have to, I can't rate him high. I don't ever want to see this again. It's (laughs) going to be a one. A one? Okay. If you're going to rate it low and you're not rating it high, for entertainment value. Mm-mm. No, I don't even I... want it to come back around. <laughs> we will not circle back to this. <laughs> I mean, fair. So I'll, I will match your one, which definitely means that it's going to come back at some point. <laughs> <laughs> but that will give him a 0.5 <laughs> as a score. That seems fair. It's terrible. <laughs> Tempus Pontificus. So, March 931 to December 935. Four years and nine months, as we've said, rounded up to five years, giving him a score of 1.25. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Obviously not. (laughs) Well, if he was, I would have questions. I would have, yeah, a lot of questions. I mean, this is the thing. We are going to deal with a lot of very young popes in this time period. And it's not a surprise that all of them, including John the Eleventh, tend to feature very highly on the list of worst popes ever. So, yeah, that brings us to his total score, which is an appropriate 11.75. It's not very good but that does not mean we have a foregone conclusion to our next question fry which is is he papally enough or pizzazzy enough with an impact enough for a papal bull no no absolutely not (laughs) he didn't do anything himself he has no power no sway if we were ranking alberic the actual beautiful revenge Absolutely, because this would be fabulous. But no, he's in 98th place for a reason. (laughs) Sorry, John, we are not going to rescue you from the grips of your family. So that brings us to the end of our episode. And we do have some thank yous to make for our patrons who need to be absolved of their temporal punishments. So thank you to Christian Denhart, Steve Cook, Meg Petz, Chris E.J., and Jesse Whittekind. Ego te absolvo. And of course, thank you as always to Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium for being our greatest inspiration. And with that, we can say thank you 
for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye. Pontifax is edited by Greg Gassman. Greg is the host of the wonderful papal history podcast, Popular History, which is history through Pope-colored glasses. At Popular History, you can also find daily content miniseries like Cardinal Numbers, ranking all of the cardinals, and coming up soon, Habemus Pointsum, where Greg and I will discuss all of the papal transitions. If you need to reach Greg, you can do so at popularhistory at gmail.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at pontifexpod at gmail.com. And we're pontifexpod on all social media platforms. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing to Pontifex on Patreon. Checking out our research wishlist at tinyurl.com slash pontifexwishlist or making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash pontifexpodcast. If you'd like to support us in other ways, rating and reviewing the show on iTunes makes a world of difference. Mm-hmm.